Now, I think this whole country right now is having a collective nervous breakdown that I'm not sure exactly how it's working, but it has something to do with social media and all of that stuff that makes it so easy to be distracted and commercial society always trying to put something in front of you that's addictive and that's going to draw you away so that probably 99% of the country are avoiding their artist's journey, whatever that is. Hey, hey, anyone listening relate to what Stephen Pressfield just said? Have you perhaps been having trouble focusing on your art? Not that following the news these days is a time suck or anything. Good God. My name is Linda Sievertson, and this is the Beautiful Writers Podcast, where I have the great pleasure of bringing on some of my favorite writers, some of the most beloved authors alive. They help us stay sane in what's been feeling like an increasingly insane world. Because the bottom line is this. We writers, we have messages of healing to share, and we need all the help we can get staying focused and clear and optimistic so that we're able to finish our art and share it. In that vein, I am elated to bring on two of my literary crushes. Stephen Pressfield, who you heard at the top and perhaps listened to on this show back in 2015, he is back with a new book, The Artist's Journey the wake of the hero's journey and the lifelong pursuit of meaning. I am so smitten. The artist's journey picks up where the war of art left off and it feels like another lifeline. Stephen's books have sold in the millions in both fiction and nonfiction. He's prolific and someone I turn to again and again for the best advice in the biz. You may know that Stephen and Sean Coyne have their own publishing company. It's called Black Irish Books. And they've now done something really fresh by releasing Steve's book in tandem with a book by Tim Grawl. It's called Running Down a Dream, Your Roadmap to Winning Creative Battles. The two books, they look alike. The artist's journey has a photo of work boots on the cover while Running Down a Dream has a photo of running shoes on the cover. If you're trying to stop sabotaging yourself and be effective at slaying any manner of dragons in your creative path, you will love both these books. Stephen is a legend who rarely partners with other writers. So right there, that's a hint that Tim has got the goods, which I can attest to. I love this book so much. You may know Tim from his past books, Your First 1,000 Copies and Book Launch Blueprint. I brought him into the Beautiful Writers Group to talk with us about book launches a few years ago because our members, they wanted to know how the heck somebody could put five of their book marketing clients on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time, which Tim has done and we will talk about later. Okay, enough from me. Let's get started. I am so glad you're here. Welcome. Stephen, it is so rare that you publish anyone else. And I can tell by staying up nearly all night to read Running Down a Dream why you published Tim's book, because it is so good. But in your words, WTF. Well, Tim and I and Sean Coyne are working together now on various things. And I've just always been impressed with Tim. He's an incredible guy. What he's doing is like way beyond what me and Sean know how to do. And it just seemed like a natural thing to do. And the two books go together so well, I think. And it was a kind of a cool thing to launch them together and see how that would work. I'm a big fan of Tim's. Anything he does, I want to get out there. Well, that brings up the style of your books, whether it's The War of Art, Turning Pro, Do the Work, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, and now publishing Running Down a Dream. 
You have a similar layout. You have short chapters. You have bold headers. The layout, the font, everything is really elegant. Can you take me behind the scenes into your stylizing decisions? And is this a personal preference thing or is there science behind your design? It all started with the War of Art, which just naturally broke itself into short chapters. Now, that came out in like 2002, and it seemed really short then. Now it seems like war and peace because everybody's attention span has shrunk so much. But that sort of clean, short chapter, some chapters not even a paragraph, that it seemed to work. It seemed to work with people. People liked it. So we just decided as a kind of a model going forward that any other book that we did on a subject of writing or the creative life would be in that style. And we also decided, uh, this is Sean and me, and, and now Tim, to have the covers look alike. Yeah. I love that. The continuity is so great. You know, it really helps for those of your audience who are writers, which is everybody. It helps on Amazon because down at where they put other books that you might be interested in. Yeah. When they string them all together down there and they do a little visual of them, if you have a continuity to the covers, it helps. It's like the Harry Potter books. Oh, right. I don't know how much it helps, but I'm sure it helps a little. Yeah. So, Tim, you say that the War of Art changed your life. Can you explain? Yeah, I feel like my story with the War of Art is a pretty common story. Before I ever got the chance to meet Sean or Steve or work with them, you know, it feels a little weird since he's on the phone gushing about him, but I'm going to do it anyway. But it's, it's like... okay, Tim, go ahead, gush away. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's this level of like... Me and all of my friends bought and read a copy and told everybody to read a copy because it was the first time that somebody put into words what we were struggling with. And, you know, I've learned this since, like I've been in therapy for years now, and I've realized you can't solve a problem that doesn't have a name until you can actually take something and set it out on the table and talk about it and it not feel like it's just this mess inside of yourself, you're never going to fix anything. Yeah. Reading The War of Art and giving the name Resistance, and then all the stories he told around it, you're just like, this is the thing that's been destroying me. Then it does that dual thing of like, one, it gives me a problem to solve, and two, it makes me feel less crazy and less alone. Right, right. I love this bit on page four of Running Down a Dream where you say, Every day I would get up, go into my office, and then waste most of the day playing video games, talking with friends, and avoiding my work. <laughs> yeah. That is so good. Oh, uh, yeah. It's still painful to hear it, but yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I think it's so common and we don't even realize. I remember when I met my fiance, I was so tired. I had just gone through such a brutal divorce and I was still in the victim mode only with time. You know, I just thought, God, I've just been so screwed in this life with time. I don't know why my burden has been heavier than everyone I know. I hadn't been sleeping for years. I had been waking up in the middle of the night to do my writing because I had so much responsibility during the day. And anyway, just pity party stuff. And so I had really worked on it through therapy and through self-commitment, through reading books. And I was a psychology major. I'm a pretty smart chick when it comes to paying attention to your inner life. So I was really trying to heal it. But then I meet my fiance. And man, he pissed me off because he's this corporate guy. 
who had his shit together. I mean, he had worked around the clock when he was young, but he was in his early 50s and he no longer was a slave to time. And he looked at me and he goes, honey, I'm going to make you an Excel spreadsheet because you need to track your time. You have no idea how much you waste. And I was offended. And sure enough, I went to Huffington Post 12 times a day. <laughs> I watched The View and Oprah every day. I mean, <laughs> it was just... <laughs> It was shocking how yeah. many hours I did not use for work. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, once you start to actually pay attention, because we tell ourselves all these stories that aren't true. And so once you actually pay attention and write stuff down or track your time or whatever, it's always just devastating because you're like, oh my gosh, that's what I do with my life. <laughs> It's so devastating. I love that part in your book where you're talking about your wife goes to the grocery store. The poor lady, she goes to pay for groceries. There's no money. She can't do it. She has to leave the store. And you're thinking to yourself, when you look at all this, you're going, oh my God, I'm always saying how busy I am. And it's a total lie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so software. What was the software that you had on your computer that helped you track your time? It's called Rescue Time. I think it's still a thing. There's a couple different ones. It's just software that runs in the background and keeps track of what you're doing on the computer all day. Sure. And you have to be courageous to want to look at that. Yeah, I think the important thing is you can use the stuff in the book to shame yourself, or you can use this stuff in the book so that you just see truth. And try not to say good or bad, just say, well, let me just figure out what's really going on. Let me at least tell myself the truth about what's going on. And then it gives you information. But most of us are so afraid of it because all we do is feel shame about it and we will actively avoid it so we don't feel the shame. Right. And so my thing is like, be unemotional about it. Don't make a decision good or bad, but at least look at it so you know what's going on. Here's the flip side of that. Is I've been watching my time lately, and I realized that I put in maybe two real hours of work a day. No more than that. I mean, it's not because I don't want to, and I waste a lot of time otherwise, but I find that you don't have to be working 24 hours a day or 12 hours a day, at least not for me. I probably get about twice as much done now than I used to, so two hours might equate to four hours. But I certainly don't need any more than that. Any more than that, and I'm totally exhausted. So there's something to that. Well, you know, Steve, I'd like your thoughts on this. Because there's work, and then there's work. Right. right? So there's work (laughs) that is like returning emails. Right. There's ordering copies of your book to give away. There's I'm not counting that. That yeah. I file under bullshit, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the stuff you have to do. Yeah, true. That's a lot of that. But when you use the word work, you're referring to writing or Correct. doing the fight with resistance. Right. Yeah. But I think that's probably true for a lot of people, like athletes, I would imagine. There's stretching and there's, you know, maybe going to the gym or something like that. But when you actually get to the field or wherever it is where you have to perform, It's a couple hours, maybe, at the most. Yeah. Well, Stephen, I've been to your house. Danielle Uh and I, after that brunch we had, that was so much fun. We came up to your house. And I would say that it would be really, it would be almost criminal to have an overworking schedule or to have an obsessive schedule with that view of yours in Malibu (laughs) overlooking the ocean. 
you live in a sanctuary. You live in, I don't even know how to explain how beautiful it is. So it really is restful. I would say it's like the epitome of what you would think maybe the artist's dream looks like. So to be there, but let's go back in time, back when you lived in the house with no windows and graffiti on the side. I mean, you were working your ass off then, right? Or when I, actually, I wasn't then, but I was also living in my van for a long time too. (laughs) Down by the river? (laughs) (laughs) But I wasn't getting any work done then either, so. Okay, but there have been times where you were writing for many hours a day. That's true, Yeah. 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 And I also know about you, Steve, you're really obsessive. So (laughs) Tim, I asked Steve recently, I emailed him and I said, hey, I'd like to have a list of books that you can recommend. You know, I'm working on the Beautiful Writers book. And I thought I have this section of the book where I ask everybody to talk about which books have really inspired their writing career. So I said, hey, Steve, I forgot to ask you this on the show. Do you have any books that you really changed your life? And oh my God, he sent me a list. It was so beautiful and so thorough. And there are books, Steve, that you read every year over and over and over and over again. And there are movies that you've watched dozens or maybe hundreds of times. I mean, you are an insatiable researcher and learner, I would say. But like you say, Linda, it's true. I But I read the same things over and over because like right now, I'm just starting to read the moviegoer, Walker Percy's book, The Moviegoer, for probably the ninth or 10th time. The great things are like some wonderful, healthy drink or, you know, and some of the bad stuff just is like junk food, you know? So, yeah. but I do go back to the same things, same movies, same books over and over. I don't know why. I always think it's a deficiency on my part, a deficiency (laughs) of imagination, but I keep doing it. Well, but there are so many of them. So I would say it's more that you're indoctrinating yourself in the classics. I think that's probably part of your genius. I think it's why you're world-class, because you study world-class texts all the time. Well, I don't know about the first part, but the second part's definitely true. (laughs) So, Tim, I'll ask you, which books other than The War of Art have influenced your writing career? I'm a very haphazard reader. So I go through these stints where I read tons of books and then I'll take a few months off. I always read fiction at night, but when we're talking about nonfiction, so I'm going to keep going down this hole. So probably besides The War of Art, my other one is The Authentic Swing by Steve Pressfield. I feel like it is one of the more underrated books because it feels very much like another one that I read a ton is Stephen King's On Writing. The kind of memoir telling a story about the process of writing, I think, is really impactful because on writing, I actually, I've read it once, but I actually listen to it more often. Listen to it, me too. Yeah, it's a really good audio book. But that's what I aspire to be. And that's one of the reasons I loved the author's journey so much is I'm still at the front end of my career. And like so many people that I see, they do it once or twice and then they kind of give up and move on or they don't stick with it long enough to become good at it. And so reading people tell the story of what it's like to become really good at this craft is powerful for me. So on writing, I usually listen to that at least once a year. And then I read The Authentic Swing every year. 
And then I read a lot of Seth Godin stuff multiple times. Tribes is probably my favorite book of his. I feel like that fundamentally changed the way I look at the world. I probably listened to Elizabeth Gilbert. I mean, this isn't a book, but her first TED Talk just over and over. Uh, Big Magic is another one that I felt like she's such a beautiful writer anyway. But the way that she talks about creativity, I feel like she understands it from this angle that I've never seen before. I reference that book all the time because she has that letter she writes to fear every time she starts a new project. Yes. And I read that anytime I start something new. Those are probably the ones that impact me the most on the creative side. But I also just read a lot of fiction as well. Because I feel like losing yourself in a good story, just, you know, I was talking Uh to a lady yesterday about this because I'm a sucker for any novel set in a bookstore. So anytime one of those (laughs) comes along, I like read that. But uh, yeah, so those that I would say authentic swing, of course, we've talked about the war of art on writing, big magic. Those are the ones that come to mind. Well, you know, I love hearing that you're a fan of novels because I agree with Daniel Pink. I was surprised. I've known you a while. Daniel's known you a lot longer. You helped Daniel launch one of his books to the New York Times list, as you've done for many people. But I was surprised when I started reading Running Down a Dream at how story-driven it was and how much of a page-turner it was. This doesn't feel like a nonfiction book. It reads like a novel. So I guess my point is what you're doing in reading these novels is working. It rubs off. So I have to stop you there. I've been working with Sean Coyne, who is Steve's editor, been his editor for over 20 years, created the Story Grid, and we've been doing the Story Grid podcast for three years. Yep. And so the only reason I've been able to distill the thousands of novels I've read into anything like a coherent story is because Sean has been patiently and wonderfully walking me through the process of learning how to tell a story. Yeah. He's a master. And he was the one I kept wanting to be done with running down a dream and he would not let me settle. It took me over a year and a half to find the book. And the reason I found the book is he kept telling me it wasn't good enough yet. Oh, that's good. What a gift. And then it was funny because both Sean and I were really stuck on the book at one point and literally five minutes in the room with Steve We had something in the introduction and he's like, no, that's the end of the book. And me and Sean looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, that is the end of the book. Like, (laughs) So uh, that is really where the storytelling in the book came from is just Sean patiently teaching me how to do it. Mm. Well, this kind of plays into the artist journey. Stephen, this is where you talk about in the new book about how you don't have any idea before you write the book what the book is going to be. And then you say, or perhaps more accurately, that I was going to write that specific book. The book always came out of nowhere and always took me by surprise. Isn't that the case? They do take us by surprise. It's certainly true for me. Now, that doesn't mean that when I start to actually write the book that I haven't already plotted it out completely. I have. Sure. But when the idea comes, it always does take me by surprise. I always think, am I even interested in that? You know, where did that come from? And the second thing I always think is, well, nobody in the world is going to be interested in this. This is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. It's totally not commercial. I can't pitch it. I can't sell it. 
And then I usually put it away. It's like on the hero's journey, the refusal of the call. You get the call and then you hang up on it a lot. Then usually a couple of months later, I'll stumble on the file. I may have written about it and I go, gee, that's a pretty good idea. And then I'll start. But it's true. These ideas come out of left field for me. I have no idea where they're coming from. And that's why I believe in the muse. And it's why I believe we're all being led as artists by some force that we can't understand. Well, that really makes sense to me because I'm such a fan of the war of art. I always think there can't be anything better. I'm not talking about in a different genre. Like Eat, Pray, Love to me is also masterful. I would never compare the two books. But from you, I'm thinking, you can't create something better than the war of art. And yet, what I'm seeing with this new book is that the war of art is really the hero's journey. And then the artist's journey is what comes after the hero's journey. And it's just as interesting. I'm like, how did he do that? Uh, I don't know. Is that a question, Linda? What was that? (laughs) But thank you. (laughs) Okay, so let me turn that into a question. The hero's journey lives in our psyche, and it leaves details specific to the individual, as you explain. So we have this pressure. We have this pressure to live this hero's journey. Like you say, it's this ticking, kind of like a ticking of a biological clock. We're pulled, yeah, I think so, right? yeah. We're pulled into our as yet unlived hero's journey. But the artist's journey, can you explain that to us? There are people listening right now who may, well, maybe give us a quickie on the hero's journey because they may not know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> okay. I mean, the hero's journey comes from Joseph Campbell and his study of uh, the myths across all cultures, and that there's a sort of an Ur story, you are story, that's common to all cultures, that is the hero's journey. It's like software in our brain that we're born with. And the movie Star Wars famously copied the hero's journey beat for beat. Luke Skywalker's journey was the hero's journey, starting in the ordinary world, receiving the call, meeting the mentor, going into the inverted world, the extraordinary world, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm definitely a believer that we all have that software in our brain. And that's why Tim's book, Running Down a Dream, was like his hero's journey. That was his totally totally candid hero's journey, including, and what I thought was so great about it was that it didn't happen in Tahiti or it didn't happen in (laughs) Afghanistan. It it happened right in the real world, you know, where the the electric company comes to the door and turns off the power (laughs) and all that stuff. But the hero's journey in our real life, I think, is when we're thrashing around and scratching and trying to find our destiny, trying to find why we were put on this planet. And we go through all kinds of adventures, whatever they may be. And at some point, we completely crash like an alcoholic that finally wakes up in the gutter and says, oh, my God, I do have a problem with alcohol. And at that point, we say, I can't live this way anymore. I've got to get it together. And that's, to me, the turning pro moment. And at that moment, we switch from our hero's journey to our artist's journey. At that point, we say, okay, I am a writer, I am a dancer, I am a filmmaker, whatever it is, and I'm going to commit myself to this. And now the issue is no longer how much are we drinking or how many drugs we're doing or how many affairs we're having. The issue becomes, what's my gift? What was I put on this planet to do? How can I get my shit together? (laughs) How can I support myself? How can I take care of my family? 
how can I carve out two hours a day or four hours a day to do my work, whatever that is, and to figure out what my voice is, what my gift is, what I was put on the planet for. And I think once we've made that turn and got on that train, we're on it to the end of the line. You know, there's no other journey left except, as I say in the book, maybe the passage to the next life. So that's the artist's journey. And it's not quite as exciting as the hero's journey. It's much more nuts and bolts and like what Sean is working with Tim about. What Sean is really doing is guiding Tim on his artist's journey. Yeah. But you say that the artist's journey is dangerous. And it is. It is. That's why we avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) Like the mystic and the renunciant. The artist does her work with an altered sphere of consciousness. She's seeking herself, her voice, her source. And then she has to enter that dark forest, right? She's alone. It sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, Hemingway blew his brains out, right? You can go in too deep into some of these things. And also, once you truly commit to it, then if you fail, or at least you think if you fail, then you're really failing, right? Prior to that, before you've committed, you can always say, well, you know, maybe someday I'll write my (laughs) magnum opus. But you're never held accountable because you've never done it. But I have found, oddly enough, that once you do commit and you are on your artist's journey, even failure is not so bad because you sort of see it right away as another step along the way, you know? And you can say to yourself, at least I was in the arena. You know, at least I gave it my best shot. And you can always build on it. The great thing about being a writer or an artist, as opposed to, say, a football player, is you can do it for your whole life. You know, you're not going to, like Tom Brady, hit age 41 and maybe your knees don't go anymore. You can keep going. So even failure is just another step on the way to success because you can keep going. Dust yourself off and do another one. I totally agree. And I also think... And I've heard you talk about this before, too. I don't think we have a choice in this forest that we enter where the rules are different and the hatters are mad and the (laughs) principles are inverted, as you so eloquently say. Not going into the forest makes you crazy. My writer friends and I talk about it all the time, especially the ones of us who teach. So teaching can get all-encompassing. Teaching can take over your life because there are endless people who want to write. And if you're halfway decent at it and you care about people and you see results, it gets fun. It gets really fun and it's collaborative and it's juicy and you can pay your bills doing it. But if you're teaching and you're not writing, you will go crazy. The teachers that I know, we all keep each other accountable. We call each other up. Are you writing? Are you writing? Send me a chapter. (laughs) What happened to that book you were talking about, Linda? Like, where the hell is it? But if I give myself even just 15 minutes a day, that keeps me from going cuckoo bird banana fish, as my friend Lauren Francis says. But if I don't do 15 minutes a day, mm. oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think this whole country right now is having a collective nervous breakdown. I <laughs> totally. In some way, I relate it to this exact phenomenon. I'm not sure exactly how it's working, but it has something to do with social media and all of that stuff that makes it so easy to be distracted and commercial society always trying to put something in front of you that's addictive and that's going to draw you away so that probably 99% of the country 
are avoiding their artist's journey, whatever that is. Even if their artist's journey is something like designing motorcycles in your garage on the weekend, I think contemporary life is hard. And this idea of trying to face your demons and do what you're put on the planet to do is a big part of it. But it is really hard. And I think one of the things that I've learned from you, Stephen, in our friendship is you keep it simple. You joke that you don't have a lot of friends because you don't want a lot of email, but you really, you really do. <laughs> I'm keep... trying to eliminate all the friends I possibly can. <laughs> but you do keep it simple and you have these great hacks. Like one of the hacks that I love that you do is you write facing towards the wall. You keep your back to the view because I guess the view is a little distracting, right? That gorgeous Malibu world of yours. So just keep your face to the wall. Well, you know, we're all working inside our heads, right? You know, right, if we're right. writing War and Peace, we're seeing Napoleonic battles, you know? So we don't need a view. Yeah. What about you, Tim? What does your writing area look like? I actually do the opposite because I have a business I run. And if I come into my office and I sit at my desk, I want to run the business. And so I tend to write out at coffee shops it's funny because I go there and I sit where I can't see anybody, but having the people there kind of helps me. It's kind of split my head. Yeah. When I'm at coffee shops, I'm there to write. When I'm at my desk, I'm there to do the business type work that we were talking about earlier. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that, Tim. That's interesting. <laughs> well, I feel like with so many of these things, it's mostly because I went through this too, where you read a book and you're like, I'm going to live my life like Tim Ferriss and I'm <laughs> going to be Tim Ferriss Jr. and just do everything he says and then Yikes. that'll fix me. <laughs> that would be hard. Right? You know, put whoever yeah. in that spot. And what I have found is I judge everything by, am I getting the writing done? Mm -hmm. And if I'm not, that doesn't mean I'm stupid. That doesn't mean I'm a loser. That doesn't mean anything. All it means is I haven't figured out the right set of things that will allow me to get my writing done. And so I'm constantly just experimenting. If I hear like, okay, well, Steve does it this way. He sits at his desk and he faces the wall. I'm going to try that for two weeks and see if it works for me. And if it doesn't, that doesn't mean that I will never be a successful writer. It just means, okay, well, it doesn't work for me the way it does for Steve. So I need to find something that works for me. And there's these great books that have come out that it's just stories of the way that artists have worked. And I think that's important to be like, okay, here's a bunch of options of different things I can try. And so I have tried to come into my office and sit down and work and I start to feel lonely and I start to feel like the walls are closing in on me <laughs> because it's already kind of hard to write. Yeah. And so I go out to coffee shops, I put on headphones, I block out the world but something about being out in the world while I'm writing allows it to flow for me mm. in a way where sitting at my desk in my office doesn't. And so I actually usually only spend about half the day at my office. I'll find whatever coffee shop or I'll sit outside somewhere or anything where there's action around me actually allows me to focus. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. What matters is I got 1,500 words done yesterday. That's what matters. I get what you mean because at my writing retreats, we have this one room that looks out over the water where people like to sit around this big table and type. And for the longest time, I would hear people down there typing, typing with their little headphones on because you're not supposed to be talking and laughing and schmutzing it up while you're writing. But I would think, oh my God, they have rooms, beautiful rooms. What are they doing down there sitting together? 
And then one time I only had four women instead of five. And so there was a little extra time. I took my writing down and I was like lonely in my beautiful perch up overlooking everything by myself. And so I went downstairs and I took my computer and I sat at the table and I had to put headphones on because I'm super sensitive and I can hear all, everybody's click clapping. And then suddenly I got into a zone that I'm not normally in. And I got so much done that now I try to have less people at the retreats. I make less money. In fact, I'm going soon. And I purposely put four people in it instead of five because I want to get work done and I'm going to go sit there and click clack with everybody. (laughs) But, but, But here's where it gets complicated for me. Sometimes like yesterday, I had that same desire. I thought, I want to be with people. So I took my computer and I went to a cafe because I was hungry. So I didn't just go to a coffee shop. I really wanted soup. And they had that dang music so loud. I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to be the diva who stands up and goes, excuse me, can you turn down your music? Like I just, I was in agony. I ended up leaving. And then one time I remember we were having a fire evacuation and I, I had a book due with Hyperion and it was due in four weeks. So I had no choice. So I had to live at Starbucks. And it was so cold. They keep the place like a refrigerator. I was like, I'm dying here. So am I just too sensitive? I mean, how do you deal with all those weird things? Well, my wife and I have this saying in our house that everything dies on the altar of truth. So in our life, we'll give up anything and anybody if it gets us a little closer to our truth and who we are. Wow. And with my work, if I walk into a place and I'm not going to be able to write there, I either make them change or I leave and go somewhere else. Yeah. Because I don't care when it's time to work, I have to work. Yeah. I live in Nashville, which is one of those small, big towns. Yep. A friend will come in and they'll see me at Starbucks and I'll say hi. And then I'm like, all right, I'll talk to you later. I'm not here to talk to you. I'm here to get my work done. We can talk later. And of course, this is in turning pro, right? This decision of if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And there are no half measures. Yeah. Because I feel like it's so easy to make sacrifices and kind of well, not today, or well, I'm at this coffee shop already. I'll just hang out here and answer some emails since I can't get my writing done. And it's much more about setting things up, doing the external deadlines to get it done. If that's what it takes to get your writing done. Literally, I think of it as everything gets sacrificed on the altar of this is what I want to do. So I've decided I'm a writer So I'm going to get my writing done, which means I have to do less of all this other bullshit. (laughs) And so that's just a decision you've got to make at some point. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of what Steve talks about when he talks about turning pro is you are by definition, by doing one thing, you're giving up other things and you have to understand that you're making that trade off. Oh, for sure. All right, Tim, you talk about the importance of practicing getting rejected. And I'm like, oh, Lord, what the heck? You want to practice getting rejected? Can you share some thoughts on that? Well, I think overall, we're afraid of a lot of things that are kind of stupid. (laughs) They don't make sense. Now, that doesn't mean we're stupid for being afraid. But my buddy, Josh, that I talk about in the book, he talks about how us trying to live in modern day society is like trying to run the latest Windows software on the Commodore 64 from the 80s. Our brains are not evolutionarily designed to live in our current environment. And so what that means is that there's all these things 
that are constantly setting off the fear buttons in our brain that because our brain doesn't know what it is because it didn't evolve to live this way. Then it becomes, okay, let's look at our fears and figure out, is this something to actually be afraid of? Because the vast majority of things, especially when it comes to our creative work, we're afraid of things that even if they happen, so most of them won't even happen, but even if they happen, it doesn't matter. (laughs) If you put out a blog post and people think it's stupid, your life changes zero. It's the exact same. Just a few people that you don't know don't like you anymore, which is okay. So (laughs) That's funny. So what are very small ways that I can control the environment to put myself in a place where I can practice the thing I'm actually afraid of? Putting out a blog post is way less scary than putting out a book I've worked on for two years. Yeah. But if I don't ever put out little things, I will keep coming up with reasons to never put out the big thing, right? Coming out with running down a dream for me was terrifying. I'd worked on it for two years. It's personal stories that even my best friends don't know. It is telling all the stories that everybody hides. (laughs) Like I have hidden. So good. Right. (laughs) But the only reason I could do that is because for years I've been practicing being vulnerable, practice sharing my stories in much more smaller environments where I'm in control. Mm-hmm. My thing is whatever you're afraid of, figure out the smallest version of that and then just practice it, practice it, practice it yeah. so you can build up the resistance to that fear. I do CrossFit and we do box jumps. So normally I have to jump on a box that's two feet high. But when people have never jumped on a box or haven't done it since they were a child, we put out something that's like three inches high Mm -hmm. and we get them used to just jumping on a box that's three inches, then six inches, then 10 inches. And then you build up and realize you're not going to die by jumping on a two foot high box. You know, that's what I do with my horse. My horse, when I got him, he was not a trail horse. He had been in the show ring his whole life. And I just wanted him to go riding on trails with me. And he was scared of everything. And so we just started with the <laughs> smallest little things like, okay, let's just step over a stick. Let's see, you know, we're not going to go for that fallen tree over there, which is going to make you do Bronco rodeo riding and it's going to break my back. We're just going to do a stick. And we did it with jumps. My trainer would put a pole on the ground and even just walking towards the pole, he would freak out. But eventually we got him walking over the pole and then we'd raise it an inch and then we'd raise it five inches. And now he loves to jump too much. I mean, it's scary for me. But anyway, I get it. That's a great analogy. I have a couple of questions about friends. I had a period of real struggle in my early years of creativity where I was connected with a bunch of struggling girlfriends. We had a support group together and we met once a week and we really held each other's dreams. And because this is one of the most competitive cities in the world, we also were catty and backstabby. And I don't think any of us meant to be. It was just we were young and we were insecure and we could be jealous of each other. So It was pretty funny. They all became world famous without me. And I had just basically dumped them. (laughs) So I had decided that I wanted to go live away from the city. My ex-husband and I were kind of stressed out. We went and lived off the grid in New Mexico. And and I really did love these women, but it was just a complicated thing for a while. So I just kind of took a break. Well, in the break that I took from them, they all went to become really freaking famous. 
I'm writing about it now, so I won't give them away. But movie star famous, Emmy award winning, you name it, they won it. Top song in America for the singer, just over and over. So I was really triggered. (laughs) I couldn't sell my book. I was just in that slog where I was a total unknown and it was hard to pay my bills. And these gals had basically driven off into the sunset without me. So have either of you ever had a case where you felt like the people around you were hitting their stride and you weren't? And how did you deal with that? I just try to find really unsuccessful friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's what my sister used to say to me. She's like, Linda, your friends are too pretty and too successful. (laughs) I just seek out losers and then hang out with them. I feel much better. And if they aren't losers, when I meet them, I do everything I can to make them losers. <laughs> Is that why we're yeah, too much now, Steve? I love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're too successful. You're making me nervous, man. I don't know. <laughs> I can't take this. Uh, I've been meaning to tell no, you no, this. No, no. I can't take it much longer. Yeah. <laughs> no, man. I see our sales figures. You're still, uh, you're still a little <laughs> bit ahead of me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, my wife heard this lady one time speaking and said it. So I've had the opposite problem, <laughs> if I'm being blunt, is that I end up hanging out with people and I'm trying to continue to move forward and they're getting nervous and they start grabbing me and trying to hold me back Oh, um, because they can't handle it. And Hugh McLeod talks about this in his amazing, wonderful book, Ignore Everybody. And he just talks about, and like, of course, I've done this to people too. But what my thing is, I want the people around me to be successful because that whole thing of you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. And we can get into really deeper stuff. But the idea that if that's bothering me, that other people are becoming successful, that's a really good opportunity for me to ask the question why that bothers me so much. Mm -hmm. And if you back away from that, then you're backing away from the people that are going to make you better because they're becoming better too. And then the people that you're around that desperately want you to stay the same because if you change, it reflects badly on them. They have that same problem. Mm. And this is where I come back to, I have work to do here on this planet. And I want to find people that will support me on that journey and will be excited for me and realize what happens to me has nothing to do with them. And then I have to be able to hold that same space for my friends that are becoming successful. Because I have friends that maybe they're not as well-known of a writer, but they make four times as much money as me. Mm -hmm. And I can either deal with my stuff so that I can continue to be around them, so that I can learn from them, so I can make more money, or I can come up with reasons why they suck and blah, 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 and then it just creates distance and I get to just stay the same. Mm. And so I hang out with people like Sean and Steve because they are more successful than me. And I want to learn from them so that I can become like them. But of course, that's different because they're ahead of me in years as well. But I have friends that we started at similar times and they are crushing me on certain areas of our life. And I'm like, let me learn because I want to be happy for them. And so I just feel like surrounding yourself with people that are moving faster than you 
means they're going to drag you along <laughs> with them. You know, <laughs> I want to hang out with people that are kicking my ass because I'll learn from them. Oh, and if they'll just continue to allow me to come to the table, they're going to drag me along and not let me sit still. Well, and you work with heavy hitters. I say in the intro that you had five clients that you were launching all on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. So you're hanging out with people who are really making a difference. Well, most of those people, they're not like my friends. You know? <laughs> like I like them and we're friendly, but we don't get coffee once a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I'm thinking of the people that are in the trenches with me. Mm-hmm. And I want those people in the trenches with me that are pushing me oh, yeah. both for their own sake, and they're pushing me because I'm watching them move and I want to keep up. But Linda, your original question is really, it's very human and very true that we do tend to compete with our friends and stuff like that. One of my favorite filmmakers is David O. Russell, who did The Fighter and Silver Linings Playbook and Joy. And all of those movies are about our family or our friends sabotaging us if we relate Mm -hmm. to the hero of the story. Mm -hmm. Because it's so true. It's so natural everywhere. But I think that, and this is something that I was writing about in The War of Art, that when somebody tries to sabotage us, it's really a reflection of their own resistance that they themselves are not facing whatever it is inside them that they have to do. Like, Tim, when you said your friends are trying to drag you down, some of them, you know, they see you living your dream, so to speak, and it's a reproach to them that they are not doing theirs. So, in other words, it's not necessarily that our friends are bad people or anything, but they're dealing with the same issues we're dealing with. So we need to be compassionate to them, but still... We also have to play hardball in our minds and just do our own shit and let them thrash around however they are going to do it. Yeah. Okay, Tim, you are the launch blueprint expert for books. What are you mm-hmm. seeing in with the new technologies and the expansion of Amazon? Can you give us the lay of the land of what you see is working right now with launching books? Good question. I want to hear the answer to this too. (laughs) Well, I always like to start with frameworks first because those don't change. Mm. So I think of it as if I'm building like a woodworking in some way and I need to attach two boards together, I can have a hammer and a nail and I can hammer the nail in and then along comes a nail gun which is just a more efficient way of doing the same thing, sure. which I, I need these boards to be together, right? So when it comes to building things with wood, you will never not need to put boards together, yeah. but hopefully new and better technologies will come along that will allow you to do it more efficiently. Nice. And so that's how I think of these things, is that anytime I'm launching a book, it really helps to be directly connected with your fans and be able to get their attention and drive action. Because there's a lot of people that are like famous, but they have no way to actually talk to the people that are interested in them. Yeah, totally true. And so I'm always trying to build up a permission asset, which is just a way to talk to the people that are interested in what I have to say. So that's how I get fans to buy a copy of my book. Fans are people that will go buy a copy of your book. So whether they're your mom, your coworkers, 
the people that listen to your podcast, the people on your email list, whatever. Yeah. And then influencers are people that will get other people to buy a copy of your book. The reason Steve and I are on this podcast is we want all the people that you influence to go buy a copy of our book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always looking at interesting ways to get connected to fans and get them to where I can talk to them long term and get them to buy not just this book, but all my future books. And then I'm looking to connect with influencers so that I can get their fans to buy a copy of my book. Then it just becomes a game of, well, what's the best technology, the best methodology to do those two things? I got to connect with fans and get them to buy my book. And I got to connect with influencers and get them to promote my book to their audience. And so right now on the fan side, building an email list is still the number one thing. And I could go deep into the numbers and the money and blah, blah, blah. But email is still 20 times more successful than building a Twitter following or Instagram or any of that kind of stuff. So signing up and starting to get email addresses of your fans is the number one thing to be doing. And then I'm just constantly looking for ways to connect with people that might be interested in what I'm doing. And most of this stuff, people get really nervous about like using people and are you're just connecting with them, da, 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 da. And it's like, yeah, but mostly I'm just connecting with people that are nerds in the same way I am. Like Linda, you and I, if we ever meet in person, we'll be able to sit around a cup of coffee for three hours talking and bitching about the same stuff because we're nerds <laughs> about the same thing. And so me connecting with you to help promote my book is mostly just me connecting with somebody else who's interested in the same thing I am. I teach courses that run on for 50 hours on this stuff, so I could go on and on. But those are just the two buckets I'm always looking at when it comes to getting ready to launch a book and figuring out how to get people to buy a book is, am I connecting with influencers and figuring out ways to get introduced to their audience? And then am I building my own audience? Am I figuring out how to let people that are interested in what I have to say, am I connecting with them in a way where I can continue to talk to them through email and other forms? Yeah, such good advice. So Tim, I am a checklist girl. And I know you talk about the power of checklists. Can you tell me what are some of your favorite systems in your life? Probably the first one is my schedule. I always joke that at any time, I would be the easiest person to murder because I'm always, <laughs> there is very little. Very, <laughs> oh my God, I think the same thing sometimes. I, I'm like, God, I'm predictable. <laughs> yeah, there's like no variance to my schedule. I do the same thing at the same time every week and I just do that so I don't have to think about it. I have tons of checklists for when I have to edit my own podcast, like and get it ready to send out to the editor. It's like 30 steps and I just go through them so I don't have to remember them or worry about forgetting them. I always seek to do things the same way over and over and over and over so that it frees up my mind to think on actual creative things. I do them so naturally now, I often don't think about them. I just always think of things like, Anytime I find myself messing up the same way every time or having to rethink through a process, I will stop and make a system out of it. So I keep my keys in the same place. I have like two pairs of jeans and 12 colors of the same t-shirt and I just roll through those. (laughs) And a lot of times I feel bad because not everybody wants to dress so simply, but I also spend an enormous amount of time 
doing physical activity because I just enjoy it. So I will save time on dressing knowing I'll screw around at jujitsu for an hour and a half today as well. So we can really go down to this hole of I have to like make every moment of my life efficient. But my point is I'm looking for any way I can systematize things I don't care about. I don't care about how I dress. Just give me something that makes me not look like an idiot and I can just wear that. (laughs) I don't care about my schedule. As long as I can get my work done, it's set. Let me set so I don't have to think about that every day. Same with like eating or exercising. My thing is free up your mind by systematizing things in your life that you don't care about so that you can focus on the things that you do. So those are the big ones that I think about. And what about technology for your writing? Are you Word doc guys or do you use, I use Evernote, I use Scrivener, I use all sorts of different tools. Are you guys uh, old school or techie? I'm definitely old school, just Word. Yeah. Yeah, I use Scrivener for long form. And then I use, Mm -hmm. it's a Mac app called Bear, B-E-A-R, for short form. But it doesn't matter. Like, (laughs) I also have gone through periods where I'll spend an entire morning when I was supposed to be writing, screwing around with new software. I thought about that when I downloaded Evernote. The reason I downloaded it is Danielle Laporte and I were just starting to write this thing called Your Big Beautiful Book Plan together. And it was really, really involved, a big project for two people. And there were a lot of files that we needed to share. And we had Google Docs, but I wanted to keep things much more organized. And so I said to Danielle, what do you use? And she said, well, my team and I are really loving Evernote. It's kind of a global brain. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool. So I downloaded it and it was very, very easy to learn. Scrivener was a lot harder for me to learn. So I probably spent six months obsessively organizing every area of my life into Evernote. I mean, recipes and schedules and every single area of my life. And my fiance kept looking at me going, yeah, that's not a time (laughs) suck. (laughs) And I said, no, no, no. One day I'm going to be grateful for all this time. And sure enough, I am now because everything is where I need it. It's on my phone. It's on my computer. It is a global brain. And if it crashes, I don't know, that's going to, I might have to jump off a cliff, but it was worth the time is my point. You just have to decide if something's worth your time, if it's going to bring you freedom in the end. What's that saying that Dan Millman says? Discipline brings excellence and excellence brings freedom. So for me, Putting that time into systems has brought me a lot of freedom. Yeah, like I've spent about a thousand dollars and probably multiple, multiple days setting up my backup system. Because oh. I have video courses that I make money on. I have all my keynote files. I have all my writing and everything yeah. I have is literally in five different places. So my office and my home and my car could all burn down on the same day and I would still not lose anything. And so now I never worry about my computer breaking. If somebody steals it, fine. Like it's annoying because I'll have to buy another one, but I'm not going to lose anything. You know, the three of us, this is like an OCD convention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we is, should pull is, in my is son. This what it's <laughs> come to. <laughs> well, but I think, you know, Steve, the reason you live up on a mountain is so that you'll get your writing done. I think yep. that's the thing. It's this, I don't want to worry about this thing. 
So I will spend the time and money to figure out how to not worry about yeah, it. Yeah, you're right, Tim. Yeah, it's the reason why somebody hires somebody to clean their house. Here's something I yeah. don't care about, cleaning my house. I do care about having <laughs> a clean house, though. And so by hiring yeah. somebody, I don't have to worry about it anymore. They got a key to my house. They just come in and clean my house once every two weeks, and I never have to worry about it. And so, of course, you do those things as you can afford them, as you can invest in them. But any time that you can just this thing that is not helping you get where you want to go, but still has to be done, how do I systematize that or just get it off my plate or stop doing it yeah. in order to do the thing that matters? I just had to renew my driver's license, which <laughs> oh, involved yeah. unbelievable stuff. I had to get a new social security card. I had to find my birth certificate. I, oh, man. It took me like an entire week. And I was thinking, who yeah. could I delegate this to? But nobody could do it. It's a good thing I only work two hours a day. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, gosh, you guys, this has been so joyful. I have one last question. It's about the artist journey being a constant. Can you talk about that, Stephen? Well, certainly once you've, like I say, got on that train, you're on that track all the way to the finish line. I always liken this to an alcoholic that decides they're going to stop drinking and they're going to change their life and they're going to join AA and they're going to do whatever it is, right? And once you've made that commitment to be a recovering alcoholic, you can't go back. You can't take a drink, you know? Yeah. You're always fighting that potential negativity. You're always walking the knife edge. You're walking the tightrope and you can fall at any time. And it becomes a constant to keep your eye on the ball and keep looking straight ahead and keep your balance and keep going. Yeah, And that, to me, is what the artist's journey is about. I mean, one of the things that really helped me in the writing of the book, helped me teach myself something was, in the book, there are certain lists, like of all of Joni Mitchell's albums, or all of Bruce Springsteen's albums, or all of Philip Roth's books, or Martin Scorsese's movies. And when you see them all lined up, one right after the other, it really gives you a sense of what a career is, and what a body of work is. And what over time a single person can produce. And you also see how there's a unity to all of Martin Scorsese's films or all of Bruce Springsteen's albums. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about that tightrope, that's how I feel about my artist's journey. And I'm sure it's true for everybody that's on that journey that there's a theme and that tightrope runs straight and it is a constant. And there are books and movies out there that you haven't reached yet that you're going to do like Tim being this young guy, he's got a whole lifetime ahead of him. And you do too, Linda, where you've got a generation, you know, two or three lifetimes that you're going to work through. And you've got these works that are in potential, but have not been done yet. So that's the constant. That's the journey. Mm, I love it. And I love Tim, how you talk about how you felt broken. You were a broken mess. I'm so glad that both of you have been so honest about your brokenness and your stress and your OCD and <laughs> your brokenness and all the things that we've all had to go through on this artist's journey of being in the trenches and doing the grunt work and losing our confidence and losing our way and hanging up the call and then picking it back up. It's never ending. It's never ending. It doesn't matter what level you're at. It's always scary. It's always rewarding. There's nothing else I'd rather do with my life. And I'm so grateful for conversations like these with warriors in the trenches. I just love it. Thank you guys so, so much. 
Thank you, Linda. Thanks for having us. Uh, what you just said, save that. That's good. <laughs> you, you got it. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. Whatever it was, I hope we recorded it. <laughs> I have the best job in the world. Thank you for listening. And big hugs to Stephen and Tim for spending their hour with us. You can order both books at blackirishbooks.com. Tim Grawl lives over at timgrawl.com or booklaunch.com. I also recommend you check out stephenpressfield.com where Stephen blogs and gives away amazing content. Speaking of amazing, we have Dave Eggers coming up next on the show to talk about his new children's book, on activism. I'm such a huge fan. And then Rosie Walsh will be back to interview Ann Patchett with me. Can you stand it? I cannot wait to see the film Bell Content before Anne comes on. As for me, if you're a fan of the show and haven't yet had time to leave us five-star love on iTunes, I would so appreciate it. I'm always working to be worthy of your time. I know how precious it is. You may have noticed the sound quality improvement in this episode. I don't know, it'll always be so clear. Sometimes our guests do have to call in from their cell phones. But I love, love, love the opportunity to keep improving for you. That's it. Book Mama signing off. Right on. <laughs>